we were looking at when we last met, and I thank Courtney for filling in for me. Um, last week we were out of town, and so I'm going to do two hours, and then he'll be back next week. Um, and so we were looking at types, and this is such a really important uh, subject in uh, looking in the Word of God. And um, the thing that you want to remember, and we talked about it last time, is that you don't want to call something a type that Scripture does not call the type. And so if you call something a type that Scripture doesn't call a type, now you're, you're going to actually be adding to Scripture and making things say that it's not saying. And so this is a real problem, and it has been in Christianity, where people are looking back and they're seeing everything as a type of Christ. And the problem with that is, is that now it becomes subjective. There's another copy there, land as well. It becomes subjective, um, and so it's just a matter of what you decide you want the type to be. So then you can get to, we used to joke in seminary with some of the other students, and we would, uh, there was a running joke, how many types can you type a minute? Why? Because a lot of preachers do it. They come up and they look back in the Old Testament, and their imagination makes them see everything as a type. And so the, the most obvious one is the, um, the um, rope that was let down by, um, um, okay, the harlot Rahab in Jericho. And so people say that that's a type of Christ, that the rope was scarlet, so that's a type of Christ. And so you have these readings where people start reading back into the Old Testament what they believe a type is. And so we want to be, we want to just let scripture say what it says and not try to make it say something. So we remember just what we talked about last time, what a type is, a definition of a type. A type is that which corresponds in form and structure to something else, either as an anticipation of a later reality or as a fulfillment of a prior type. And so in the New Testament, I mean, we, we are told the, the corresponding type. So we don't have to guess at it. And so I just like to stay with what you see in the New Testament that you can prove. Now, you can go back in the Old Testament and make that rope a type of Christ. But you can get, and, and people have said, you can get 20 people in the same room and ask them, is that a type? And you'll come up with different answers. So now you've made scripture subjective, you see. It should be objective so that you and I should be able to come to the same conclusions if we're uh, illuminated by the Holy Spirit, you see. And so what we've been looking at and where we left off and looking at different things that were seen as a type, Scripture either calls it a type or it actually compares it to that thing, right? And so we look, for example, at um, the Passover lamb. And so that's, that's actually where we left off, and let's pick it up there again in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. And so here's a comparison in which the Passover lamb was seen as being compared to Christ. So you had the Passover lamb that suffered. Now we see that Christ is our Passover lamb. So we could actually say, okay, that's one for one. That's a type, Right? And so we don't have to guess at that. When you start guessing and you get two or three people come up with, the, with a, a different story, you are 
treading in bad territory. I know people do it. I, I, don't, I don't feel comfortable doing it. Um, I like just staying with what Scripture says in the New Testament that we can prove from Scripture is a type. So notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, <clears throat> Paul is talking, about the, uh, talking to the Corinthians about this guy who was with his father's wife. And notice in verse um, 7, he says, Purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump. I think there's an outline over there, Rick. As you are unleavened, for even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And so this is with reference to the Passover lamb. So that Passover lamb was sacrificed on behalf of Israel. Christ is sacrificed on behalf of the believer today. Right. And so, I mean, that's that's uh, that's pretty easy to see. It's in the, the next row back. Or, oh, yeah, one of those is fine. Um, also, uh, if you look in. Um, John chapter 6, we see that the manna that was, came down from heaven was a type. And so look at John chapter 6, and you see that the Lord makes reference to this in John 6, chapter 48. I mean, chapter 6, and verse 48 through 58. And so there's a corresponding um, actuality in the New Testament that you see matches up with what was happening in the Old Testament and there's insight that is given to cause you to understand that there, that, that was looking forward to something, right? It's not something, so with a lot of those that in the Old Testament, for example, and I'll stay with Rahab, there's not a corresponding answer in the New Testament that points to that. You don't see a corresponding, a corresponding match in the New Testament. And so that tells me that somebody just decided that that's what they thought was right. And so you just, you want to be careful. And so notice in John chapter 6, notice, and we'll pick it up in verse 48. Now this is a very interesting chapter. And this is one of the reasons why it is said, you really should not tell new believers to read the Gospel of John. It is really, in some instances, a very complicated book. Because there's a lot going on in the Gospel of John. And you could actually, I guess, help people thinking that they're going to lose their salvation. There's some misunderstanding of discipleship and what all that meant. You're going to see the Lord say something here in John chapter 6 and verse 48. And some of these things that happened, they wouldn't happen to New Testament believers today. So you're going to see that he's going to tell them some things. And many of his disciples are going to leave him. Many. They're going to walk away from them and never. And it was interesting, and somebody says that in the upper room, it's, it's funny, though it's not funny. Do you know how many people it said in Acts 1 was in the upper, the upper room when, on the day of Pentecost? There was only 120 people there. Wow, only. I mean, when you think about the thrones of people, all of the people that followed the Lord during his earthly, earthly ministry, when you get to the upper room, there was only 120 people in the upper room. Now, I, you know, there probably were more than that that believed. I'm just making a point. Uh, if you were to actually judge the Lord's earthly ministry based upon what you actually see in Scripture, you would think that he was a failure. Look at John chapter 6 and verse 48. He says, I am the bread of life. 
Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. So now he's talking about the literal bread that they ate in the wilderness. And he's going to make a switch and start referring to himself as that bread. And they don't get the switch. He begins to talk about spiritual bread that they need to eat. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And that bread that I will give him is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And the Jews, therefore, strove among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? (laughs) Just beside, what is he, a cannibal? (laughs) Then Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, Except you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink of his blood, you shall have no life in you. Whosoever eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. So here's another confusing thing, just as an aside, for somebody who was reading who was a new believer. What do you mean you will raise him up in the last day? What does that mean? You see, he's talking to the Jewish audience. And they had an understanding that there was going to be one general resurrection in the last day. Remember Martha or Mary when she was at the, the tomb of Lazarus? And she says, uh, I know that he will live. He will be raised again in the last day. Right. The Jews understood that last day going back to um, Daniel 12, that there's going to be a resurrection of the Old Testament saints to go into the tribulation period. Now, if you don't understand a lot of the background that's here you will be thoroughly confused. And so notice, he says, verse 55, For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood dwells in me, and I in him. And as the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eats, eats, uh, eateth of me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread that came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead, he that eats of this bread shall live forever. You see, so you see that corresponding correlation there between the manna that came down from heaven and it was a picture of what was going to happen with the sun, you see. And so notice in verse 59, they really responded um, and said, oh, glory, hallelujah. Just tell us where we can start munching. <laughs> verse 59. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? And when Jesus knew in in and of himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Does this offend you? What if you shall see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the spirit that quickened and the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, therefore, said I unto you, that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him by my father. Now notice what happens. Verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. You say, oh, no, no, everybody, he told parables and everybody just followed them and they were all saved, right? 
Well, you understand that the word disciple is not equivalent to salvation. It wasn't equivalent to salvation in the Gospels. Notice he said many of his disciples turned back and followed him no more. And so notice verse 67, then said Jesus under the 12, will you also go away? Then Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. But the, notice the correspondence there between the manna that the Israelites heard, ate in the wilderness and the Lord being a representation of that from a spiritual sense. So you can match that, right? This is not the imagination, right? It corresponds, and that's what a type will do. And so I just think that when you make up something and there's not a New Testament correspondence for it, you're out on a limb. And um, I, I really try not to go there to make a correspondence that can't be proven. Now notice you see another exa- example of it with Melchizedek being a type of Christ as a ro- in his role as a high priest. Um, if you look over at Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 7. Now notice in Hebrews chapter 7, and we will pick it up in uh, verse 18. For there is verily a disannulling, and remember the context here, he's writing, and I believe the author to be the Apostle Paul. A lot of great men disagree, Courtney being one of them, but we'll we'll accept them anyway. (laughs) No, I think there's enough evidence to show that it is the Apostle Paul, though a lot of people don't know. We can't say for sure. Uh, though there's a lot of evidence in the book that says that he's the Apostle Paul. And just as an aside, one of the reasons why it's believed that he didn't put his name down as the author is because he's talking to the same Jewish audience that he actually went into the temple and actually lived by law in front of in Acts 21. So now he's writing to these same people and trying to tell them not to go under law when he did it himself. And so there is a consideration that that's why he did not put his name uh, on that. And, you know, that's just one of the things that you can consider there as to why his name is not considered uh, or he doesn't include his name in the book. But notice in Hebrews chapter seven, for there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and the unprofitability thereof for the law made nothing perfect. Uh, And so that word perfect, nothing mature, no one matured under the law, not Moses, not uh, Joshua. None of those Old Testament saints actually grew or matured spiritually. None of them. But the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made a priest for those priests were made without an oath. But this one with an oath by him that said unto him, the Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So now you had this guy Melchizedek and we don't have a lot of information about him. Some people um, say that he was Christ. Now, I don't agree with that because you wouldn't compare the type to the thing that you're comparing it to. But some people believe that. So Melchizedek came, walked into the pages of scripture when uh, Abraham went to Sodom and won that battle uh, over the kings of Sodom. Sodom. 
And Abraham offered up a sacrifice to him. And this was not under law. Right? And so he now the Lord is being compared to that kind of priesthood. Notice in verse 22. By so much was Jesus made the surety or really the guarantee of a better testament. Now, one of the things that is a um, theme of the book of Hebrews is better. We have something better. We have a better covenant. We have a better hope. We have better promises. Better, better, better. Everything is better. And you ask yourself, how could anybody read this book and actually ever think that you were under law? Then you didn't read this book, or you, you probably, if you did read it, you, you weren't illuminated. Notice in verse 23. And they were many priests because they were n- not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continues forever, or really into perpetuity, has an unchangeable priesthood, whereby he is able... Um, Okay, let's read down through 8.1. Whereby he is able to save them to the utmost that come to God by him, seeing that he ever lives to make intercession for them. And so the high priest has a responsibility or an office to intercede or to make intercession. And so that's what Christ is doing today. He is our high priest, not in, akin to those under law, but here in reference to Melchizedek. And so you see that uh, correlation there. Notice in verse 26, for such a high priest becomes us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners and made higher than the heavens, who need not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and for the people. For this he did once when he offered up himself for the law made men high priests, which have infirmity. But the word of oath, which was since the law, maketh the son who is consecrated forevermore. And so then you see in verse 1 of chapter 8, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who was set at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. And so here you have the Lord who is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he is functioning as high priest, not as a high priest in correlation to those under law, but in the office of Melchizedek. And what is he doing for us? Well, you and I just go about our daily um, life and we think that things are just merrily just happening. You probably thought today that you got up and things just happened and that there was no order to it. Nobody was in control of it. You would think wrong. Christ is in complete control of what's happening in the circumstances of your life on a daily basis. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father and he's interceding. You see it in verse 25. He is interceding for the believer. And why is he interceding for the believer? To keep the believer saved. (laughs) These people who believe that they can lose their salvation, you don't understand how secure your salvation is and how much God has already provided for it. And so the son, one of the things that he's doing, he ever liveth and he, to intercede for us, and he's going to make sure that he gets you from point A to point Z. Now, do you think that you can mess that up? You don't have the ability to mess it up. 
And, he, you know, if you actually get to the point where you say, yeah, I can mess it up. There's that line over there and I'm going to jump over it. He's going to say, no, you're not jumping over that line. Come on. Come on, buddy. We got some things for you to do up here. <laughs> you're not jumping over that line. And so notice, so you have these types. and There's a corresponding um, answer for it or a uh, illustration in the New Testament that corresponds to what is said in the Old Testament. This should be very clear to see from the examples we looked at. Now, when I go back into the Old Testament and I try to make a type of Christ, I'm going outside of the authority that's been given to me. What authority do I have to do that? What? I don't have the authority to do that. Look, we as pastor teachers don't have the authority to do and say whatever we want to do. There's a line that God has given for us in terms of what we teach and how we teach it. You don't get to just make up the rules. And this is why the church is in the trouble that it's in today. And so that's the problem. And so when you go back and you think about Christ in the Old Testament, there are certain things that you can see that correspond with things that in the Old Testament were a type or a foreshadowing of Christ that points to something that he was going to do or be in the New Testament. And those are clearly outlined. And um, I know that there's a lot of people that say, I can go to you and show you Christ in every book of the Bible and every page. And okay, I'm not one of those guys. (laughs) Maybe you can go to them. Maybe they understand something I don't understand. I'm not one of those guys. Okay, so then we look at the pre-incarnate son of God. And so in the Old Testament, we've looked at some of the names and some of the things that he was involved in before he took on human flesh. And again, we give the name the pre-incarnate Son of God. And I did want to put this up here just to give you a um, kind of an overview, a visual of what's happening here uh, historically. So I bring you up to the Tower of Babel. And you know, before then, you had the flood. You had um, uh, Abraham, I mean, excuse me, uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. All the way up to the Tower of Babel. And so you had the son's involvement there at Babel. Remember, let us go down and see if we see what... Uh, the men men are doing right and then he disturbed what they were doing by dividing them into their lands their tongues their families and their nations right so the son was involved there but then you see as he starts dealing with one nation remember all men rejected him at the tower of babel all men and i i think that romans one is a commentary on that and so god started dealing with one group of people he allowed the gentiles to go their own way We see that in Acts 14. And he starts dealing with one group of people from the line of Shem, and they become the Israelites. And they become the place of God's blessing. Now, in uh, Deuteronomy, um, Moses writes as to why God did this. Deuteronomy 7.7. He didn't choose Israel because they were better than anyone else. He chose them because they were the least of the nations. And so why did he choose them? So that he could show the rest of the Gentiles who had rejected them that the God of Israel was greater than the gods that they were serving. That's why he chose Israel. There was nothing special about Israel. Just like there's nothing special about you and me. And so it's about whom God chooses to be able to show forth his glory through. And so you could see a similarity, right, with um, 
how he chose Israel because they were the smallest nation. There's a similarity with us. You want to see it? You sure? Let me show you. First Corinthians one. This will take your self-esteem down a peg. <laughs> see, it's first Corinthians chapter one. So if you have self-esteem, this should this should knock it out. If it's teetering, this should really get rid of it. <laughs> first Corinthians chapter one. Now notice verse six, twenty-six. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things. Then that word for foolish is actually the word for moronic. The moronic things. So I guess you could say we're morons. (laughs) (laughs) Of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things. Of the world to confound the things that are mighty. So see how there's a similarity in what God chooses? God doesn't. So when you go out, when you were kids and you played games, you would make choices based upon who was the best. Right? And at the end of the choosing, you would always see the little scrawny kids or, you know, every ones that nobody wanted on their team left. Right? That's not. Well, God would have chose those people first. He would have chosen the ones that people didn't want. You see. But that's not how the world chooses. And the base things, verse 28 of the world, the things which are despised has God chosen. Yea, the things which are not to bring to naught the things that are. That no flesh shall glory in his presence. Nobody's going to be able to boast because you said it happened because of who I am. And isn't that happened in the world system? How people boast because of what family background they came from, you know, how rich they were, whatever their, their, their state is. They're boasting on the basis of that. And so God chose Israel because they were the smallest nation. And so now the second person, he begins to deal with Israel. As we saw that he dwelt in the tabernacle, he dwelt in the, uh, the temple uh, before he departed in Ezekiel. Right. Um, he was the pillar of fire as they were in the wilderness. And so now he comes over here, Israel. Remember, Israel, he left uh, in Ezekiel 10. We looked at that. He left Israel because of their disobedience. And they went into captivity for uh, 70 years. And so they were always waiting on the return of the second person, which they called the glory. They were waiting on the return of the glory. And so for uh, 400 years or so, they didn't hear anything from God. Nothing. And so, and so then one day, this guy appears um, in the wilderness saying, repent, the kingdom from the heavens are at hand. And so you could see it in John chapter 1. They went out to him and asked him, who are you? Right? Are you that prophet? This is kind of go down the line, right? Are you Elijah? No, I'm not. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And so based upon what John had said to them, they should have known that he was uh, there to, as a forerunner to Messiah. Uh, and so they rejected him. Israel is now blinded. This is very important to understand. The nation of Israel is blinded. 
Now, there's been a lot of people that have sent me texts that asked me about what I thought about what's going on in Israel. And you don't want to know what I think? Nothing. It doesn't matter what happens with Israel. It really doesn't. The rapture is not predicated on the rapture, not one bit. Not one bit. And so God's going to do what he does with Israel after the rapture. You see, most of the people that are in the nation of Israel today are secular. They are not believers. They are in unbelief. Romans chapter 11 tells you, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, of this mystery, that blindness has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. You know who the place, who's in that place of blessing today? It's the people that keep looking at Israel and saying that they're in the place of blessing. It's the church. My goodness, this is, this is really interesting that people don't see that. It's the church. But the difference is you have replacement theology that says that the church has replaced Israel. We don't believe that. The church has not replaced Israel. God has just put Israel on pause until he's finished with the church, which is, which is a combination of the Jews and the Gentiles. You see. So that really is important. So now he's, Israel is blinded. So now they're looking to go into the tribulation period. And who is he dealing with now? The church. The church is in that place of blessing today. Now, don't get mad at me. I didn't say it. God said it. And just let me give you the scripture before we go on uh, to the incarnation. Look at Romans chapter um, 11. And I think it's verse 25. And so this is a mystery that was revealed and the mystery is that God was, has cut off Israel from that place of blessing. You go back into um, uh, Micah, same thing. I'm going to divorce Israel. I'm going to pronounce Lorami. They are not my people. And they are not God's people today. They are not God's people. And if you say that, you're not saying something that's true. Notice in Romans chapter 11 and verse 22. Verse, behold, therefore, the goodness and the severity of God on them which fail severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness. Otherwise, thou shalt also be cut off. And they also, if they abide not, still in unbelief shall be grafted in. See, he's going to graft them back in to that place, that tree of blessing. For God is able to graft them in again. For if thou were cut out of the wild olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into the good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Verse 25, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. And you know how they're going to be saved? When he, in the middle of the tribulation period, he takes them into the wilderness. You see that in Revelation chapter 12. He separates the rebels from the elect of Israel. So that by the time you get to, to the end of the tribulation, uh, end of the tribulation period, all Israel is Israel. The elect of Israel and the nation will be the same. 
Not all of your, your people that belong to the nation of Israel today are elect. Not all of them are elect. And it won't be that way until it comes. So now he comes and he, he came to the nation of Israel and here he took on a human body. And so this is something that the son hadn't done before. He took on a human body. So we would call it not Christmas, but Incarnation Day. Why? Because God took on a human flesh. Uh, and so let's look at this in John chapter um, 1 and verse 14. And so if you look at this, so you have different parts of God's program and what he's doing. Right here, he's dealing with all men. All men rejected him. Now he starts dealing with one group of people, the nation of Israel. Now they reject him. Uh, but he's going to first come and he's going to take on this human body. And there's reasons that uh, we're going to see he took on that body. One is to offer them the kingdom that he had promised them and then so forth. And then after they reject him, he turns to the church. And so this is the reason that I put this up here. I want you to have a visual of the son's relationship to the to father's um, plan and purposes and what he's doing throughout, right? That you can have this visual that you can see that. And so notice the, um, in John chapter 1, and let's start with, with verse 1. We've looked at the uh, word for word, word here. Uh, it's the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, or facing God, and the Word was God, or really the Word was deity. Is The thing that he's trying to prove here is that that second person was facing the Father, and that shows that he himself was God. Right? The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. So just as you see this word for light, uh, light is always correlated with life. So light equals life. So the sun's life is light. When the sun's life could be seen out, is that not that he was walking around glowing like a light, but his life was seen out. That was the light, you see. Now notice in verse 5, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for witness to bear witness to that light, and all men through him, that all through him, men, uh, through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lightens every man that comes into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Can you imagine that, that you created, say, uh, what was that? Um, there was a picture that uh, Joyce and I used to watch on TV some years ago, Undercover Boss, right? Remember where the boss would go undercover in his own company? <laughs> he heard a lot of things he didn't want to hear. And so here you see that with the Lord Jesus. He made the creation and actually, the inanimate things and animals responded to him. So he could tell the storm, peace be still. So what was ironic about this statement was that the uh, nature listened to him, but his own people didn't. And that was the irony. He, and so 
he was in the world and the world made, was made by him and the world knew him not. And so here you see it in verse 11. He came to his own. See that word his own there? I would translate it. He came unto his own things and his own people received him not. That's the irony of it. But as many as received him, to them he gave, you see that word power is really the authority to become sons of God. Here's another place here that if you told people to read, a new person to read to John, that they would be tripped up by this. Why? Because notice here he says, as many as received him, to them he gave power to become sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, or really it's authority. You don't get authority to become sons of God. Today, when you're saved, you are immediately a son of God. We're not looking to become sons of God. Immediately, from the time that you believe the facts of the gospel, you are a son of God. But in this context, they were looking to get it in the age to come. And you can see that in Mark 10.30. Which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man but of God, or really out from God. And here we have it, verse 14. And the word was made flesh, or came to be flesh. Now think about that. God took on a human body. And notice what he says here, John says, and, and he dwelt, the word dwelt is the, actually is the word for to tabernacle, to live like in a tent, to settle down in a body, like in a tent. And he, tab- he dwelt among us, or tabernacled among us. And notice what happened in that, that, that God life being in a body. And we beheld his glory. The word for beheld is actually the word theomai. And it's to watch as in a theater. You're looking at something as if you're sitting in a theater and you're watching what's going on. So John is telling us, and you can go back in the first John, and he says this again, that they were just watching for themselves as they saw what he was doing. And I don't think that they put it all together at that time. Um, And so the Holy Spirit brought it together for them after the fact. We beheld his glory. The glory as the only begotten already is a unique kind of son of God, uh, a unique one from, uh, of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so this word for flesh, as you see, is uh, used in Scripture to denote human existence in a physical realm. Um, and so you see that the word became flesh. And so notice the son took upon uh, himself human flesh, in what scripture calls the manifestation of godliness. And so this was the first time when the son took on a human body that God's life could be seen out in a human body. And this is actually what godliness is. Godliness is is that God's life can be seen out in a human body. You have to be careful as you go back over to the Old Testament. A lot of your Old Testament translations in the King James use the word godly, uh, but it's not talking about godly like you see godliness here. Let me give you an example. Look at, if you would, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16.
1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. So Paul is telling Timothy about the importance of scripture and how the church of the living God is the pillar and ground of the truth. Notice in verse 15, but if I tarry long, that thou may knoweth how thou ought to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. <coughs> and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And so this was a mystery. And remember, we can understand what a mystery is. If you hold your finger there, I want to give you the definition of what a mystery is so that there is no <coughs> question. This is not um, like um, Agatha Christie, who done it. <laughs> it's not that kind of mystery. Notice in Colossians chapter 1, I think it is, he gives you the definition of a mystery, what a mystery is. And it's different from a biblical point of view. In uh, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 26. Okay, my memory's working good today. I was concerned about that. <laughs> Notice verse 25, Paul says, Wherefore I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me to you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery. Notice is something he's going to tell you what a mystery is, which has been hid from ages. So a mystery is something that had not been revealed before God revealed it. Nobody knew about it. And so when he says ages, here is a reflection that spirit beings didn't know about it. They didn't know that he was going to do this. And then from generations, men didn't know about it. If you went back in the Old Testament and you asked Moses, well, what is this thing about the son taking on human flesh? He would have not known what you were talking about. This was something that was not revealed in the Old Testament. It was only revealed at the time that God reveals it. And so when you see mystery, here you have a good understanding of what a mystery is. See, it was hid from ages and from generations. Generations. Notice here you have this um, adverb of time, this um, phrase that's used. It's used a lot in the New Testament that shows you something wasn't going on in the past, but now it's happening. But now it's made manifest to his saints. You see, And now that's related to the fact of the believers today. That Christ is in every believer. That was something that the Old Testament saints didn't know that God was going to do. He didn't reveal it to them. And you say, well, why did he do it? Well, that's not fair. Well, do you reveal everything you're doing to everybody? It's funny how we say that and we say that God shouldn't do something. And we do the very same thing that we tell him that he shouldn't be doing. No, and, and again, if you understand that scripture is progressive revelation, God is progressively revealing to people what he wants them to know at the time that he wants them to know it. And so there's a lot of things that he didn't reveal in the Old Testament that he revealed in the New Testament. And so going back to 1 Timothy 3, you see this uh, unveiling of the fact that the son would take on human flesh. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And what is that? You, they have a colon there, which really it should be. What is that mystery? God was manifest in the flesh. That was something that they did not know was going to happen in the Old Testament. 
that the son would take on a human body. And so there's a lot of reasons as to why he took on the human body. And we'll look at some of those reasons. And it was to fulfill what God's plan was for this period of time. And so we'll see that. So the circumstances surrounding the birth of Christ are some of the more discussed of any birth in human history. Scripture teaches that our Lord was born, and we're on B on page 6, was born a virgin of a virgin human mother, conceived by the Holy Spirit apart from a human father. Now we can show you, and we do in um, biblical anthropology, that the problem is, is that the sin nature is transmitted not from the woman, well, if you women could um, had the ability to have a baby without a man, if that were possible, you could probably have a perfect child. <laughs> but it's the man that the sin nature is transmitted uh, through the father, right? And so the Lord did not have a human father, and um, and so the, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit apart from a human father. Now this is this is crucial, and I know a lot of uh, people, and there's a lot of seminaries today who do not believe in the virgin birth. They do not teach that the Lord was born of a virgin, uh, and if he wasn't born of a virgin, then everything that he did was pointless. You might as well close the Bible up and just toss it. This, none of it really matters. Um, I was talking to a fellow back some years ago, and um, actually it was a family member. And he had gone to seminary and he told me that he didn't believe in the virgin birth. I think I woke up maybe a couple of days later <laughs> after falling on the floor, just, uh, just astonished that he said that. And he had no clue about what he was saying and the implications of it. And yet this guy graduated from a seminary. And so uh, he was born of a virgin uh, mother According to the scriptural account, the Lord Jesus was conceived during the time of his mother Mary was betrothed to be married to Joseph. And so you see the account in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Now notice, we'll pick it up in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when as his mother, Mary, was espoused to Joseph before they came together. And that word for espousal is back in um, the, um, this time. It was, more, it, was, it was more sure than an engagement. And so when you were espoused to someone, there was a ceremony that went, took place. There was a, um, a dowry that had to be given. And so once you were espoused to someone, the wedding was going down. It wasn't like an engagement here in America where you could break it off. And, it, you know, and sometimes you probably should uh, today. But it wasn't like that. Um, it, it's, um, it was um, as, as, uh, just like you were married. So he was espoused to Joseph before they came together. She was found with child, and I would say... Um, out from the Holy Spirit, out from the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, um, her husband being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, 
And I would say an angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord. Um, and the reason I say that is because there's not an article there in the original language. And remember, we saw in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord was the pre-incarnate son, you see. So it is an angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary, thy wife, for that which really is that, you could actually translate it, that thing which is conceived of her is uh, out from the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit fashioned the human body of the Lord Jesus in the womb of Mary. And then the son joined his person to that body. Now, this is very important to understand. Why? Because the Catholic Church teaches as a doctrine that Mary gave birth to God. And they believe that. And so... Let me show you a couple of things here. Look at, if you go back to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Let's see if my memory is working again today. Uh, Yes, it's working. Two for two. (laughs) Let's start with verse one. For the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of those things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Uh, Really the word perfect again is, is mature. And so they offered all of those sacrifices over and over and over again and they could never grow. They could never reach maturity. Verse 2, for then would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. And so all of those sacrifices and when they made the the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year on the day of Yom Kippur and offer up a sacrifice for the nation of Israel. And so none of those things actually took away their sins. Actually, the word there is kafir means that it covered over their sins for another year. It never took them away. None of those sacrifices took away sins. None of them. You see why? Because God was looking at the fact that there was one coming that will, would deal with the issue of sins, and that was his son. So you could say that he was taking care of that on credit. And we know that from Romans chapter 3, that the cross looks backwards as well as forwards. But the thing that you want to know is that the people were not told that. They didn't know that. So notice in verse 5, Wherefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering, thou would would not. You didn't desire it. But a body thou hast prepared for me. Right? Now, how could Mary give birth to the Lord Jesus if, if, she, I mean, if he was already in existence? Right? You had the second person of the Godhead who was in existence. Before Mary was even thought of. You see, the Holy Spirit took the body of the Lord Jesus, fashioned the body in the womb of Mary. The son took his person and joined it to that body and became the God man. That's the only way it could have ever happened. You see. 
And so that's really important to know. Now notice I want to show you one other place. If you look at Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. You have a little bit more explanation in verse, um, let's pick it up in verse 31. Uh, start, start with 30. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus and he shall be great, and he shall be called the son of the highest, and the Lord shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Just as an aside, look at what the expectation was for his initial incarnation. It was to Israel, right? That he would be, um, uh, he would be called the son of the most highest. The Lord would give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob and I would say, into an age. And his kingdom, there shall be no end. I don't know, again, how you could read Luke chapter 1 and not understand that the Lord's first responsibilities during his earthly ministry was to the nation of Israel. Verse 34. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this thing be, seeing that I know not a man? So here you have corroboration again from Mary that she had not had any kind of relationship with a man, yet she was found um, with, uh, uh, conceived uh, having a, a baby in the womb. And so notice in verse 35, And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Spirit shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. And therefore also, now notice they translate it right here. Now, if you had a baby... And I came and called you a baby. Look at that thing. What would you, would you, what would you say to me? <laughs> I mean, do you think that, that women, mothers would actually like that? No. But they actually translate this correct here. That holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. There was a conception in the womb of the body. And somebody asked, well, how long did it take for the body to be fashioned and for the son to join his nature to that body? I don't know. You can ask the Lord at the rapture. <laughs> I have no idea how long it took. I, I mean, I don't think it took long. Uh, but, um, but you can see that there was the body that was fashioned in the womb and then the son joined his nature to the body and he became the God man. And that's important to understand. And so the central, um, I gave you some information here at the bottom of page six on the dowry. And you can go back and look at that. that there was an agreement reached by the families and placed the betrothed parties in the legal position of a married couple. And there was a, a period of time between the transaction that the, of the consummation of the marriage. So this is all important to understand when you start looking at some of the things like uh, Matthew 25, where you see the wedding feast. And, uh, and all of these things, it really is important to understand what was happening here. It's, it's so unlike what we understand marriage and engagement to be. And you have to not think in those light, in that, in that term, because that's not it. And so, um, so by the time that they, um, uh, the transaction of the dowry and the con there was a consummation of the marriage, 
And, uh, and so the marriage would take place at the consummation. And unfaithfulness before this cons- consummation was considered adultery, you see. And this is why the problem there was with Mary when she was found with child. This could have, she could have been stoned to death, right, because of that. And so, uh, so it, it was during this interval that the Lord was conceived, and the birth of the Lord was by a human mother and a divine father that made him the God-man, 100% God, and 100% man. Now, we really want to emphasize this because um, you see people go to both sides. They'll either um, uh, humanize the Lord, right, and, and ignore his deity, or they'll, say they'll, they'll really emphasize his deity and ignore his humanity. And both are important. He was 100% God. He was 100% man. And so you'll see that when we start getting into his earthly ministry and some of the things happen, like when um, he's, the woman touches him and he says, who touched me? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess you could say, well, you know, he's just humoring people, right? No, I don't think some of that was humor. I think that when he ate, he ate because he was hungry. When he was thirsty, he, he was thirsty. In the realm of his humanity, he felt things just like you and I would feel it. And that's important to understand because, I mean, he had to experience some of those things as a human being in order to have sympathy with what human beings are going through. And so so proof that the Lord was a man can be seen in the fact that he experienced the normal growth of a human. Um, There is not much recorded concerning the Lord's life from his infancy to the 13th year of his life, some historical records record that he did things that are unsubstantiated. Uh, I think Scott said it last, a few couple of weeks ago, the popular one is that he ran across a dead bird and he killed the bird and you know, let the bird go away and all of this. I mean, none of this is just stuff that people say. There's no substantiation for that. Dr. Luke, in his gospel, records most of what is revealed in scripture about his childhood. We'll stop right here, and then we'll pick it up after the break with uh, what that is. All right. Rick, you want to give thanks for the food? Uh, Again, thank you for your grace. Uh, thank you for providing for us something that's so great a salvation that we, it's beyond our ability to comprehend the provisions you've given us. And so thankful that we have the opportunity to be able to glorify you while we're in these bodies. In your son's name we pray. Amen.